Hey everyone, this week we start a, uh, a new series for six weeks. It really stems from this book that we've been reading. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And in the introductory part of this, the, the writer of this book, Dane Ortland, suggests that if you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're hurting, if you're disillusioned, if you're worn out, lean into Christ. And one of the things that we want to do in this next six weeks is to continue to kind of open up places where we're worn out, where sin has had its effect. And this week specifically, uh, by God's sovereignty, based on our culture, we want to talk about how this issue of justice that seems to be all over the news is the one of the ways in which some of our people, maybe all of our people, are experiencing being worn out or, or suffering or hurting. So we thought a good uh, discussion on that would be helpful. Uh, but before we just like dive into the deep end on, on the issue of justice, we thought it'd be good to kind of establish some foundational pieces that we view justice from. So uh, we've talked about how to lay this out. We're going to kind of work it through what sounds a little bit like 101, but this is going to be very helpful. So Paul, why don't you talk about like the first part of this is understanding the the good news, the gospel. Yeah. And and that's where we want to start. That's our foundation for uh, any any of these conversations that we have, but particularly in the conversation of justice. And the gospel is, uh, J.I. Packer has a summary where he he just says that the gospel is that God saves sinners. And, and I really like that because it does make it very simple. It says that the work is completely of God, uh, that we as sinners had nothing that we could do to contribute to our own salvation, uh, that it's completely a work that's accomplished for us, not something that we do, but something that's been done for us. Uh, it's the news of how we've been moved from death to life, and it produces a new way of living. It's, it's, it's news that creates a life of love, um, but that life of love is not itself the gospel. So there's a good definition that I've heard that I like to use that the gospel is God's working word to a dying world about his glorious son. So Jesus, God's promised rescuer and ruler, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death uh, that we that we should have died, uh, rose again in vindication and as the first fruit of new creation to bring forgiven sinners together under his gracious rule and reign. In the book of uh, Mark, this is what God says about his son. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And it says this in Mark 1.15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So the gospel is the reality that the kingdom of God is at hand and, and Jesus is the, is the content of the gospel, the content of that good news. And the only response is repentance and faith. Now, the news is for me as an individual sinner. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Um, but the gospel is really much bigger than that as well. And, and in the Bible, the gospel is expansive because it's a Christ-centered gospel. And listen what Paul says about Christ in, in Ephesians and in Colossians. In Ephesians uh, 1, 7, 10 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. That's the gospel. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And then in Colossians, Paul says this of the son of God, Jesus, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for in him, 
All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So there's a lot there, but it talks about just the expansive nature of the message of the gospel, which is the message of the rule of King Jesus. And the gospel has to be that expansive. It has to be that comprehensive because sin has extended so far. Hmm. It's uh, interesting. I remember when I came to faith and ended up at Arizona State, um, there were these moments where things were so hard and I just began to open my Bible and I just read my Bible and read my Bible. And these passages like you just read of him reconciling all things in heaven and on earth were really confusing to me because the message I'd had proclaimed to me was just Christ dies for our sins. And I had an understanding of sin, which was right at the moment. It was, but it was just of my sin, my personal sin. But then to go like, why is he reconciling things in heaven and the expansiveness over the whole of creation that he spoke to. And it really came down to, I had a really shallow view of sin. It was not that it was wrong. It was just that the way the Bible speaks about the effects of sin was much bigger. So there's a hymn that we sing at Christmas called Joy to the World. And one of my favorite verses that oftentimes gets taken out of it says that um, no more let sin or sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And that idea of he's come to make his blessings flow, he's making a statement that in Christ, the good news of the gospel, the work of Jesus came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Well, when you stop and you say, how far is the curse found? You really stop if you read the Bible or if you're just a human and you experience life, you just go, things are screwed up everywhere. Now, the way the Bible talks about sin, which is really important as we have a conversation about justice, which is what this message is about today, because justice really is about righteousness. Um, Those words are almost interchangeable in the Bible, is what is right. The opposite of what is right is what sin is. And it's disobedience against the God who is right. But sin is spoken of very comprehensively in the Bible. So there's four dimensions of sin that at times we've spoken of, but this is really important. I think as we get into this, and even if you're out there taking notes, these four dimensions of sin is that sin is cosmic, it's societal, it's individual, and it's ecclesial. The word ecclesial means in the church. It's hard to say churchial, so it's in the church. So going through those, sin is cosmic. This is where these huge passages like you just read get into the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth. And the cosmic reality is that there is good and there's evil. Good is God, evil is Satan. And this reality of the way Satan's spoken of in the Bible is he's out to seek, to kill, and to destroy. He's the father of lies. So he propagates lies like he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. And when we ingest those lies and begin to live them out, and then we fulfill, this is what's so interesting, and I don't want to get too deep here, but 
human beings by nature doing what humans do build cultures or they build societies. So as sinful people build societies, it's why it's cosmic. We listen to lies. We build societies. So it's cosmic and it's societal. It's in society. It's in the structures in which we live. It's in our organizations. It's in our companies. It's in our families. It's in our homes because it's an individual. So it's cosmic, societal, individual. This is where we've got it mastered when we think about individual sin. But most often we think about individual sin, we only think about the bad things that we're doing. And it's more than even that, which we'll get to in a minute. So cosmic, societal, individual, and it's in the church. And right now, so much of the frustration in the world is that the world looks at the church and at some points judges it. And it's interesting because Jesus says that God gives the right to the world to determine if we're Christians based upon how we love each other. Um, But they begin to judge the church because they see sin within it. And it's important to recognize right now, yes, sin is in the church. All over the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, sin is in the people of God. Every New Testament letter is written as a corrective. So it's important to understand these four dimensions of sin to rightfully understand the gospel and rightfully understand justice. Cosmic, societal, individual, and ecclesial in the church. Now, in individual, there's sin, and the classic theologians would say there's these kinds of even individual sin. There's um, co-missionary sins, that's I commit acts. There's omissionary sins, the things I should be doing that I'm not doing. Then there's conscious sins, the things I recognize as sin, even when I do them and afterwards. Then there's unconscious sin. This is where these passages in Ephesians and Hebrews about the deceitfulness of sin come out specifically. And then there's recognized and unrecognized sin. So a lot of times we get in this conversation about justice, we get freaked out when people begin to speak about sin in omissionary ways, unconscious ways, or unrevealed ways. And the reality is, Tim, you and I were just having a conversation this week. That's the majority of our sin. And and sin's deceitful, and so it speaks about it. So in that, I think what's really important, we live in these really divisive times where people want to separate the good from bad based upon good nations and bad nations, good political parties and bad political parties, the people who think like me and the people who don't think like me, to remember this really great quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who had been under the oppression of the Soviet governments He says this, after he's been under the oppression, it would be so easy to say to him, the Soviet system is what's evil. He says this, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. This is happening all over our culture right now. He says, but... It's not that simple. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Here's what he's saying. We got to look inside, but we're scared to destroy a piece of our own heart and come to recognition of that. So when we think about justice, it's so important to understand that justice is so important because God loves the world that sin has unjustly begun to suck the life of. That's the way the Bible speaks about sin. So it's important to realize that justice is rooted in the character of God. Paul speaks about this. He is just 
and the justifier. It's rooted in the character of God. It flows from, here's a phrase we're going to use through this whole series, it flows from the heart of God. It's woven into the fabric of God's creation because God upholds his creation by his powerful word. It's part of the image of God, human beings in every person. Justice is commanded in the scriptures and integral to the promise of the gospel. Justice is incarnated in the life of Jesus, inseparable from his words and deeds. Justice is highlighted in Jesus' concern for the poor, and then it's demonstrated in his death and his resurrection. That's right. Well, when I'm listening to both of this, I'm trying to put it in a bucket and talk about the the conclusions of a gospel statement that starts with the recognition that we're sinners, right? So that... And then what God is doing with sinners he saves to be the light in the world. And uh, it's interesting that the simplicity of what the church is supposed to be is so obvious that even non-believers know what we're supposed to be. And, and, and we, we're a little bit kind of immune to it, to be fair. We're really close to the things that offend us. And so we cry justice for those things. But the things that are hidden, like those, say, those streams of evil that run through every heart, those are the unconscious, the things that I'm not so close to, the things that I feel right to. And, and, that, and let's just confess it as a church, <clears throat> everything we're doing is to try to get close to what God has said, to reveal His heart for us, and to, in humility, submit ourselves to that, like confess. I mean, it's part of our routine of spiritual disciplines to, to wake up and confess. And we've used the language all the time about the humility, which is part of our discussion next week. But the idea of humility to start every day going, I, it must be my perspective. It must be something I can't see. And um, it's not a wasted effort. Even if you end up going, it's prob- it might not be in me, but it's at least good good expression. So, you know, part, part of this is that the way we talk about the gospel, it's never like just vertical, although it is vertical. It isn't just vertical. So in its simplest forms, God saves sinners. God alone saves sinners. There is no other savior. There is no other rescuer. There's no other way. We say all these exclusive statements, but we've also said and never shied away from this. The gospel isn't just something that fixes us this way. Vertically, it's something that affects us so much deeply that it affects how we deal horizontally with people. That's the transformation word. Like we really say this, that God doesn't save people. He also doesn't transform. Hmm. And it's not magic, perfection overnight. It's over your lifetime. It's progressive. It's little steps at a time. You're becoming like Jesus every day. He is faithful, the promise. He is faithful to finish the work he started in you. And we know that takes glory to totally finish it, but he's working on it. And, and one of the categories in our discussion about transformation is this issue of justice. And the reason why we're bringing it up today is because it's just such a hot subject in, in, in our culture and our moment. But it's always a reminder to start with the foundations because if you don't deal with the foundation, you can run out into justice without a savior mm-hmm. and you will choose moralism to solve the problem. And moralism is powerless to save. You can't help anybody with just doing things like that. Um, ultimately, there's no salvation in that. And the, the other reality is that faith, the faith that we claim, this exclusive Jesus, it is, it is uh, without works, it's useless. That's what James tells us in James 2. So you can't claim you know Christ and show no efforts towards being transformed like Christ. But, but I think what the homogenous understanding of James 2 is, is that the work that he's done to make us like him is that we're, we're justified for good 
And that is rightness. And that's the word you use, that righteous thing. So we have been saved to go and be a saving influence, a preserving influence, a salt and light influence in the world around us. And one of the subjects is justice. So let me do this. We all know we've heard the word justice. Tyler, you just did a a really quick but clear depiction of the source of justice. We serve a God who is just. He is is just. He's not just compartmentally just. He's always just in every category. He's just in his love. He's just in his wrath. He's always just. Therefore, the reflection of justice is in his people. And when you pick up the Bible specifically... You're overwhelmed with passages that keep coming at this issue of justice, how it should be reflected in the transforming people. So let let me just for fun go through some of the passages that I thought of this week as it pertains to the issue of God commanding justice in Psalm 82, verse 3 and 4. Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do good and seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 22, verse 16. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Amos 5, verses 21 through 24. I hate and despise. Now, this is so convicting. Just think about this for a second and let it paint the picture in your mind. I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But... Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Micah 6 eight is probably the most popular, familiar one to us. He has told you, O man, what is good and what he, do- what he does. The Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. If you get into the New Testament, and I won't take the time to read all these passages, but the examples kind of are striking. Um, this is Jesus when he has an encounter with the Pharisees and he's crying out, woe to you. And he's giving it to them about their righteousness that doesn't live transformed. And he says, you tithe, mint, rue, and every herb. In other words, you do the religious ceremonies really well, but you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. There are passages and stories that come to mind um, the Good Samaritan, for instance, of, of all the scandalous stories Jesus could have told to paint a picture of what it is to go and live these things and to be his hands and feet in the world. In Matthew 25, Jesus talking to his disciples about how the Father will separate those who are his and those who aren't his puts it in really brass tacks. Did you feed me? Did you clothe me? Did you uh, did take care of me? Did you visit me in prison? And he says, if you did, you're of me. And that's not like ladder climbing righteousness. It is righteousness expressed in obedience. And that's how over and over again it's described. And I know uh, we're in a, I'm learning this, to be honest with you guys. I've, I've lamented a lot this week that I don't know enough of what I should know in subjects. But words are very difficult because you can throw out a word and suddenly everyone's got their own dictionary. And so for just a second... Um, the word justice has a particular meaning in, in the scriptures. Uh, I read this week that the um, Hebrew language has two that are used in the Old Testament. 
One is Mishvah, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so if this is mispronounced, you'll forgive me. And the other one is Zedekah. The Mishvah is the one you automatically think of when you think justice. People are treated fairly. When things are wrong, things are made right. You know, So every, everything you think about a courtroom or everything you think about squaring the deal in our culture, you go, well, that's, that's that Mishvah. You know, that's that thing. The other Hebrew word, the Zedekah word, is, is, uh, is translated in the Bible, righteousness, but it's really rightness. And it is basically the idea that when a person conducts himself so rightly, that the effect of it is rightness. And in fact, the writer, I read this, said, if you do, if you do Zedekah right, you'll never need mitzvah. Because Zedekah is the right way we treat each other. And the only reason you need mitzvah is when things are broken and you got to fix it and bring righteousness to it. And then the, the Old Testament brings these two words together some 30 times to describe a kind of thing that God really is for. And that is when, when he makes things right and you understand what right is, you go and do right. And, and that's kind of the, you know, let's call it this because there's so much like tension in words. Let's call that biblical justice. Like when God is talking about justice, he says, it's not, it's not good enough. It's not good enough for you just to make sure everything's square whenever you see something bent. You have to go live rightly so that things are always square. And I think that really helps us under, understand kind of that word. But I, I go automatically to, uh, okay, so what? So let's say that quickly helps us understand that God really is a just God and he cares about justice and justice is defendable and the transformative work of the Spirit is making us a just people. So what? Like, what, do, what are we supposed to do to, to be a just people? Especially in something that's so like tenuous as our culture right now. Paul, you got sure. some thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, there are tons of books on the subject, yeah. hours and hours of sermons and podcasts and talks on that. So for us to fully you know, kind of develop all that. We just don't have the time for that. But I thought of a, just a simple thing that everybody could do this week. And it's interesting that we, um, you know, prior to this series, had that series on, on unity yeah. um, back in a simpler time when we just couldn't agree on a virus or not. And, um, and we talked about the pathway to unity started with humility. And I love the definition that you helped us with where it's a, it starts with a suspicion of yourself. Could I be wrong? And, and really doing the work at kind of like looking at yourself in prayer. God, reveal in me um, if there is any wicked way and create in me a, a clean heart. Create in me a right spirit, God. Start with me first. So um, if we apply humility in it first in this, and the, and the first would be just to, to look and to look at yourself through prayer. And then also to really- Can I stop you for a second? Yeah. Because Tyler, you shared a story today that automatically brought that hmm. point to yeah. mind. It was a story that you heard in uh, the governor's office, I yeah. think. You want to share it just because it helps kind of understand yeah, it's a that great, humility. It's a great story. And I think it's a, a great tie that Paul will bring out in the so what's about when you just sit privately in prayer, there's all types of things that don't get exposed. But there's a woman I'm very connected to in the governor's office, and she has two deputy directors that work with her. One of the deputy directors is a white mother of two grown boys who are both police officers. The other deputy director is a black woman with three sons that are also grown. And uh, this white woman with two policemen who are her sons uh, was 
so sick with anxiety based upon all the riots and the protests and the challenge to um, police departments and her sons. And she literally couldn't get up and go to work because she was literally sick with anxiety about worrying about her sons that they legitimately could be killed or really, really harmed based upon the anger of rioters and protesters. And she called this woman and said, hey, I can't come in, I'm sick with anxiety. And then in the midst of it, she broke down weeping even harder and she said, what I'm beginning to recognize that I can't live three days with of worry about my sons as police officers is what this other deputy director, a really good friend of hers who's a black woman, has felt about her three sons their entire lives, is that she's had to educate them of how to interact so that they don't get unjustly beat up, punished, whether that's verbally beat up, physically punished, or all the way unto death. And this woman who works in the governor's office just said it was such an amazing moment of solidarity, of feeling like this is my sister, and I'm now personally feeling this, that she's felt her entire life. Yeah. I love that story because that's like the picture of what it is to slow down and think. Yeah. What is it like from another yeah. position? What yeah. Else? Well, no, that, serve, that segues really to what I think the next. So if you look, if you actually really see people, it reminds me of the story when Jesus is at Simon's house and uh, the woman breaks in and it's this huge scandal because she breaks in and she starts to anoint Jesus's feet. And um, Simon thinks to himself, he doesn't say it out loud, he thinks to himself, if Jesus really knew who this was, she'd be nowhere near him. And uh, Jesus, who can hear what Simon is thinking, he, uh, the first thing he says, he says, uh, Simon, do you, do you see her? Because Simon, Simon didn't see her the same way that Jesus saw her. Jesus saw her as his a daughter created in his image. And Simon just saw an issue, a problem, inferior. So first that looking, looking at yourself through prayer, asking God, just search my heart, and then looking and really seeing people like the story you illustrated. And then secondly, listening. Um, Tom used to always say, you know, you have two ears and one mouth, respect the ratio. And uh, listening to the hurts of others. We, We come, we arrive at conversations with a preconceived and kind of prejudged idea about what it is that they're feeling or what it is that they're saying already, but truly listen, listen to the hurts of of others. When the Samaritan woman went back into the town, she was overjoyed because she said, this man listened to everything I said about my life and he still loved me. Uh, What comes to mind is when Tyler talked about compassion a week or two ago and you Mm -hmm. talked about the guts of compassion. I don't think there's any other kind. There isn't. That's what the word means. I mean, compassion, when it's put on compassion in Colossians, the word literally means bowels of mercy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and then next, learn. Learn, really learn what it is um, to, for, for people who are suffering and hurting um, and enter into that. Through, through learning. And then lastly, uh, love. And that definition of love is you, you lay yourself down. You disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others. And if you, if you take those steps, really, we see the person of Jesus in those steps. Well, we, we use this language all the time, die to yourself. Yeah. You know, and we got to stop thinking die to ourselves is a one-time event. Amen. Like you, you die to yourself when you get saved. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just saying the Christian life is every day dying. Right. And uh, you, what makes it challenging is I don't know where. Mm. But the Spirit's pretty good changing the subject and changing the stories to go, oh, maybe it's there, maybe it's there. And mm. softness that's appreciating of its own sin would say, maybe it's here. Right. Yeah. 
So I, for, as far as so what's, you know, and, and again, there are many, but I think if we took this pathway of humility and at least started there and we were known for there, we'd, um, we, w- we would experience, we would experience what Jesus experienced. Um, and we'd be transformed more and more into, uh, into his likeness, which um, is what we do when communion. We remember the person of Jesus. Remember, um, all throughout the scripture, God says things like, you know, when you love the poor, you love me. When you feed the poor, you feed me. And, and Jesus not just identified with the poor, uh, he himself became poor. And he himself suffered injustice and oppression. Um, James Boyce, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, he, he has this explanation. He says, the arrest of Jesus, the interrogation, the lack of defensive counsel, the physical abuse, everything about the arrest and the trial of Jesus was a miscarriage of justice. And he says this, he says, Jesus Christ literally became one of the oppressed. He literally went under the yoke of injustice. And now because of all that, he says, I who deserved vindication got condemnation. So you, human beings who have messed up this world, who have rebelled against a holy God, who deserve condemnation, can get justice and pardon. And that was secured through the body and the blood of Jesus. And so when we come to this moment of communion, we take the bread, which reminds us of the body of Jesus that was crushed, broken because of our rebellion. Uh, So let's eat in remembrance of him. And then we take the cup. The cup represents the spilled blood of Jesus. And we're reminded of how Jesus plunged himself into our lives at infinite cost to himself. He threaded himself into our lives, saving us um, and rescuing us. So let's take and drink in remembrance of that. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you um, that you're just and holy and right and true. And I thank you, Father, that because of your love and compassion for sinners and sufferers like us, um, you poured out that justice on your Son on our behalf. And as Paul reminded us, and as we're always reminded every week, that he was crushed for our iniquities. And what we get is what we don't deserve. We get grace. That's our favorite word. And so, Father, we're thankful today. And we're also asking, um, as we do every week, we don't want to just come to your word and, and add to our understanding. We want to be different people. So there isn't anything easy about climbing into the shoes of another person because we're so wired to concern ourselves with, with our story. But help us, Father. In time, keep working. Don't give up. Keep transforming. Make us one. Help us love like you do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.